And a good Sunday morning to you. Susie Jones taking the day off. She'll be back next week. Denny Long, in the meantime, thanks for joining us this morning. As we mentioned on the air yesterday morning, we will have as our special guest, a return guest here on WCCO, Dr. Andrew Steam, who is a pulmonologist. He is a sleep medicine specialist with Alina Health, has uh, returned back to our airwaves, as we used to say, uh, answering listener questions either by phone or by text. Uh, how did you sleep last night? Do you have sleep issues? We're going to talk about those and answer those listener questions the rest of this hour. Dr. Steam, good morning. Thanks for returning here on CCO. Uh, good morning, Denny. It's my pleasure. We uh, were thinking, some of us around here, how uh, every you know six months or so we have to change our clocks here in the station, like everybody else. And uh, one right. of the many questions we had for you, does that it, does that affect some people as far as Realizing it's just an hour, an hour here, an hour there. Uh, have you heard heard anything from your patients or uh, in, in general uh, that this affects some people? Oh, it, absolutely. It absolutely does. Uh, there is uh, good data uh, that particularly in March when we spring forward and we lose that hour, uh, there are big effects. Um, we see suicide rates increase, uh, motor vehicle accident rates increase, uh, heart attack and ER visits uh, increase. Uh, it is associated with significant health consequences. Um, then when we uh, fall back, falling back is, is an easier thing to do. Uh, it gives most of us an extra hour of sleep. Uh, but even that isn't necessarily a good thing for everyone. You know, it, it is easier uh, to go to bed an hour later than necessarily wake up an hour later. So we still tend to lose some sleep uh, even when we fall back. Uh, which is associated with more subtle problems like mood alterations and, and rates of depression uh, do increase, and, and even some increased risk of motor vehicle accidents. So, it, I mean, it does affect our, our health clearly. Interesting data. I know that when I was on a early morning shift here at WCCO during the week, uh, after, you're right, in March uh, when we lose that hour, um, it, it seemed to me it took about a week. I don't have any major issues, not those anyway. Uh, but it took about five, six days to kind of get in the groove. Is that kind of typical too? It is. Our our internal clock is something that we have. We can exert some behavioral control over. And so once we get in that routine and our body learns that new routine, it's like many routines, like going to the gym or our bedtime routine, um, once you kind of make yourself do it for a little bit, it becomes a lot easier. And I know we mentioned it and uh, asked you about this uh, before, but uh, again, a lot of our listeners know, many do, that uh, that I was diagnosed with sleep apnea over 20 years ago. But how does uh, an MD get, what kind of training did you have to go through? You're a pulmonologist, you're a sleep medicine specialist. You know, many, many years ago, we never heard that term. At least I didn't, that there was a, a sleep medicine specialty. Can you give us a little background of what you had to do for your training? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it changed a little bit about 15 years ago, where it became a more formal uh, year of training uh, that we call a fellowship. And so you have to spend your, your you initially get a board certification in something else, like internal medicine, or, and there are other ways in, like psychiatry and neurology, and you kind of complete training for that profession. Uh, and then you do one more year of training specific in sleep and sleep disorders, where you're seeing patients and, and receiving education on that. Uh, and, and so uh, for most of us, it's one additional year of training to become a sleep specialist. 
Right. And where did you uh, happen to, to get your education? Locally or around, uh, other parts of the country? Yeah, no, I, yeah. The University of Minnesota is where I received mine. Go Gophers. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if our listeners uh, happen to have any questions about sleep, if you, uh, we're going to talk about uh, various type of uh, sleep disorders. But uh, call us or text us. It's just one number, as you know, 651-461-9226. And you also know we tend to get a little busy on this uh, this hour. Uh, call or text your uh, sleep questions if you have those issues, any issues, 651-461-9226 this morning. Let's talk a little bit uh, about, generally speaking, in your practice, Dr. What what are some of, of uh, sleep orders? I know we've heard of, you know, I mentioned sleep apnea, and I mentioned earlier restless leg. Uh, what other sleep orders are there? The I, I think we see a fair amount of insomnia. Um, which covers a wide range of complaints, ranging from the I have trouble falling asleep to I have trouble staying asleep. So maybe I can get four hours, but then after I wake up after four hours, I have a hard time going back to sleep and getting enough sleep. Uh, The other big family that we see is people just feeling unrested. You know, so I'm getting I'm getting enough time to sleep. I feel like I'm in bed. I'm doing all the right things, but when I wake up, I just don't feel rested. Uh, And then the the fun one. Uh, that we see is a family of diseases called parasomnia, and that's kind of the sleepwalking, sleep-talking, and unusual nighttime behaviors. And what are some examples of that? That's kind of scary. It sounds scary to me. It, it can be, uh, and that's usually the one that brings people in. So sleepwalking is a pretty common phenomenon. Uh, but when you uh, get behind the wheel of a car or walk outside, uh, particularly in the winter, and you realize it could, or you th- I, you, you're found on the top of a roof because you meandered out of a window, uh, those can be pretty frightening things that actually brings you to the attention of uh, a physician uh, or a care provider, usually in a situation like that. Um, and so the, the most common one that we see is actually, I, I would suspect, is a disease that we call REM behavior disorder. Hmm. Um, and REM behavior disorder is a disease where, for a typical person in REM sleep, which is where we do the most vigorous dreaming, um, our muscles are kind of functionally paralyzed. We, we don't move, maybe little twitches. Uh, but for these persons, uh, their bodies will actually become quite active. And so you may have a dream where you're in a fight, uh, and then you actually start punching in bed. So you may injure yourself, you may injure your spouse as you're thrashing out and punching or kicking and yelling and screaming. And so that clearly is something that's disturbing and brings you to the attention of a physician. I'm actually frequently impressed that for my patients, they may have been doing this for a year or two, uh, and it's not until they actually hurt themselves uh, that they realize it's something worth getting attention for. Yeah, these are real issues, and, and we've all heard stories, at least many of us, about uh, uh, people maybe dreaming, sleepwalking, jumping out of bed, diving as if uh, in, in a swimming pool and, uh, and really hurting themselves, or like you said. Uh, getting out and actually driving a car. We can talk about those as we, when we come back uh, from this uh, break. Any kind of a sleep issue you may have uh, for you or a loved one, someone you care about, call us or text us this morning. Your questions for Dr. Andrew Steam, who is a, a sleep medicine specialist with Atlanta Health here on WCCO. Here's the number, 651-461-9226. Right now in the Twin Cities, we have 42 degrees. Should be a nice day. Uh, gradually becoming sunny. High near 56. Again, right now, 42. Here on 830 WCCO, stay with us. 720 on a Sunday morning. Denny and for Susie, she'll be back next week in the midst of our health hour here on CCO. This morning, 
Dr. Andrew Esteem is with us. He is a pulmonologist. He is a sleep medicine specialist with Alina. Alina Health, answering those sleep questions this morning, and we're getting many of them. Maybe it's probably not too surprising to you. It's an important topic. And uh, we think, we're thinking about then talking about time changes. We'll be doing that when in a couple of weeks or so, uh, getting back to standard time. In the meantime, if you do have one of those type of questions for the doctor, 651-461-9226. I'm looking at the tech screen, Dr. Steam, and uh, we were talking about the things that some people do who actually dream and sleepwalk. Uh, this texture says, my husband will rearrange things in the room when asleep. It's very unnerving, I can imagine. It's just one example. I'm sure you hear many. You know, we're getting, Doctor, a lot of questions this morning about sleep apnea. Uh, one in particular wanted to know the difference between the types of uh, apnea. And maybe what we should do is back up a little bit and explain, or if you would, uh, describe what is sleep apnea. So sleep apnea means not breathing while you're asleep. Uh, and apnea is the medical term for uh, missing a breath. Um, and there are two main types of sleep apnea. The first type is what we call obstructive sleep apnea. And that's what most people think of when they think of sleep apnea. Uh, and it's obstructive because this is a person that wants to breathe. They're trying to breathe, but their throat is obstructed. So the breath can't come in. Uh, so a big tonsils, big tongue, a mushy throat. Uh, and at night, all the muscles of the throat relax. So things become super mushy back there. And if they're so mushy that we can't get that breath in, um, our body has to make a choice. Does it let us breathe or does it let us sleep? And our bodies choose breathing. You can, you can miss a night of sleep, but you can't miss a night of breathing. Uh, and... It wakes us up usually just a little below our detection thresholds uh, and kicks in our neck muscles, opens up our throat, and we breathe. And so we're breathing all night, but we're not getting a good night's sleep. And very often, uh, this person's also making a lot of snoring noises. Uh, and sometimes people will m notice they miss the breath, and uh, they're kind of choking or gasping themselves awake. Uh, and so this is the person who's snoring, skipping breaths, and feeling unrested the next day. And that's what we call obstructive sleep apnea. There's another kind called central sleep apnea, which is where the person's just, the, the brain isn't sending the message to breathe for a variety of reasons. So their throat's open. They could breathe if they wanted to, but they're just not breathing. And there's a variety of reasons that can be true. Um, some medications can have that effect. Um, some certain central brain disorders can have that effect. And some heart diseases can have that effect. Uh, and, uh, and those are the two main kinds of sleep apnea. But the effect is the same because they're skipping breaths. They're not having the quality of sleep that they would like to have. I don't know if it's typical, but I remember all those years ago, my wife at the time, and maybe it is typical, the partner will say, hey, you stopped breathing. And I would say, no, I did not. Uh, is it usually the partner uh, that uh, recognizes that rather than the person suffering? It, it's very much a both and. I mean, it, it's, it's you're asleep, so you don't know what's going on. You don't sure. know how bad your snoring is. Uh, you don't know how much you're missing breaths. Um, the analogy I usually use is uh, sleeping by an airport. You know, and so there are some people who, when they sleep by an airport and a plane keeps flying overhead, they sleep right through that, and they personally feel fine, and they're not disturbed by that plane. 
And so there are some people with sleep apnea, <clears throat> they feel fine, and they're just sleeping right through it. And there are other people at the airport will be miserable, and they can't sleep, and they feel cranky and tired the next day. And there are some people with sleep apnea that will uh, be cranky, miserable, and tired, and everything in between. And so there are certainly some people out there that will feel tired and miserable with their sleep apnea, and there are some people that will feel okay. And it's really more the observations of the spouse uh, or the bed partner that kind of bring it to their attention. Sure. 651-461-9226. We're talking about uh, uh, sleep problems, uh, any kind that you may have, uh, restless leg, things like that. We'll uh, pick up on those as well. Just maybe one more question that's uh, come in about uh, sleep apnea, uh, and I think it's an interesting one. What can untreated sleep apnea do to your body long term? Uh, untreated severe sleep apnea in particular is associated with the increased risk of heart attacks, stroke, uh, and death. Uh, and it's about uh, an observed tripling of the death rate among untreated patients with severe sleep apnea compared to those that don't have it or those that are treated. Uh, and so that's a big impact that we worry about. Um, the more day-to-day is not feeling as rested as you could. And so we see on the, on the most hazardous end of that, automobile accidents uh, are higher uh, amongst untreated sleep apnea compared to treated. But then more just that I'm not doing as good at work. I'm not as good for my family. I'm not on my A game. My memory's not quite as good as it could be. My attention's not as good as it could be. Uh, and those are the more real day-to-day impacts of sleep apnea. You mentioned insomnia earlier, doctor. I'm looking at a text uh, listener saying, why is it, and maybe you can say, tell us if this is true or not, why is it older women have so much trouble with insomnia regardless of how much exercise they might get? Insomnia in general becomes a little bit more common as we age. Uh, and, and it's true, there is an increased predilection among women compared to men. Um, and, and part of that's because as we age, there are more reasons to wake up. There's more back pain, bladders and prostates don't work as well as they could. Hips and shoulders hurt a little bit more. Uh, and so it's a little bit harder to stay comfortable and be comfortable in bed or to wake up undisturbed. Uh, the other thing that happens as we age is we also get more control of our schedule. And, and uh, I uh, want to wake up at about 7.30 in the morning, but Monday through Friday, because of my career, I have to wake up at 6. Um, and so I'm not in control of my sleep schedule. But in when I retire, I get control. I'm able to sleep longer and spend more time in bed, and that actually results in an increased rates of insomnia. Uh, the more time we spend in bed, the less time we have to spend asleep in bed. Uh, and, and we can start to see risks of insomnia rise in that regard, too. You've had this question a thousand times, maybe a day. Uh, is, is there a, a, a good amount of sleep, or do we all differ so much that uh, six hours is good, four hours is good, eight, ten hours? Uh, is there a minimum that's uh, healthiest for us? There is a little bit of a bell curve uh, for any given population, but they're age-based recommendations. Uh, so for the typical adult, we need seven to nine hours of sleep. Uh, most of us are not getting that. Uh, most of us in the United States are getting about six hours, 40 minutes of sleep, but we need seven to nine. Uh, when, for those over the age of 65, it's more seven to eight is kind of the recommendation. Uh, but there is variability person to person. And so there are some people who are totally content with only getting six and a half hours of sleep or only need and can't get more than six and a half, even if they wanted to. Uh, we do see health consequences for those that habitually 
sleep less than six hours and those that habitually sleep more than nine hours. That's when we start to see increased risks of diseases pop up, other than just not feeling as rested as they could. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, Doctor, and we'll have a look at that uh, CCO forecast, and we'll have about another half hour or so, maybe a little less, when we come back. We're talking about sleep problems. If you have uh, any yourself or someone you care about, maybe when we come back we can talk about restless leg, among other things. Give us a call or send a text, whichever is easier, 651-461-9226. We'll get the weather straight ahead here on News Talk 830. This is WCCO. And a good Sunday morning to you. Nice to have you with us on our health hour. Denny and for Susie, she'll be back next week. We're in the midst of our conversation, and your question's getting answered by Dr. Andrew Steam, who's a pulmonologist. He is a sleep medicine specialist with Alina Health here in the Twin Cities, answering those questions either by phone or by text, 651-461-9226. Looking at an interesting question, uh, doctor, about... Uh, as far as while we sleep, um, please ask the doctor, Denny, can you smell while you're sound asleep? <laughs> can we smell things? The answer is yes, and I think that probably surprises most people. Um, the, but now, if you actually thought about it, you probably would understand. Um, if there's smoke, you'd want to know because you'd sure. want to wake up and be able to address it. Uh, if the bed were warm, uh, you do feel it. You get uncomfortable and you can take your comforter off because you're sweating. Uh, if you hear a loud crash in the background, you'll wake up and address it. Your body still is perceiving while you sleep. You know where the edge of your bed is. You know how full your bladder is. What's different is the generation of memory, kind of that consciousness. You're, you're not recording the smells. You're not going to remember the smells, uh, but you very much are still perceiving while you're asleep. I'm looking at a text from a listener, doctor, that, that related to uh, our question when we first started our chat this morning. Uh, it is this. How is our semiannual time change any different from traveling across time zones? I, in many ways, it's not. Uh, it's creating the same kind of jet lag phenomenon that you might experience if you cross time zones. Um, I have a lot of family in California. Uh, and let me tell you, I love going to California because magically I get two more hours before I have to be awake. But I, coming back to Minnesota from California and now suddenly I have to wake up two hours earlier, that can be painful. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's very much the exact same thing. Let's talk, we mentioned restless leg syndrome. Uh, maybe you can explain what that is and uh, what causes it and is, is, is there somewhat of a cure for that? It, absolutely. There is a lot that can be done. And so I would very much encourage uh, people to complain if they feel like they're having restless legs. There's this mnemonic that we use, which is URGE, uh, U-R-G-E. Uh, and the U stands for uh, an urge to move your legs. So these patients will experience some discomfort in their legs. Uh, and it's usually some discomfort that's generating a desire to move. I've heard people describe it as creepy crawly sensations or aches. Uh, but it's just this general discomfort in their legs that makes them want to move. Uh, the R stands for rest-induced, uh, meaning when you're not moving is when those symptoms start to creep in. So when you're watching TV, you're stuck on an airplane, or you're lying in bed at night is when those symptoms come in. Um, the G is gets better when you do move. So this is a person that they'll feel this discomfort, they'll get out of bed, and they'll start walking around, and that feels pretty good. 
the problem with that is you can't go to bed if you're up walking around, and you also can't go to bed if you're uncomfortable. So on both counts, it's stopping that person from falling asleep. Um, and then the E stands for in eveningness, meaning it's worse in the nighttime. So uh, during the day, maybe I could sit in a chair for 45 minutes before I'm uncomfortable. But in the evening, it, just within 10, 15 minutes, I'm uncomfortable, and it's getting worse in the evening. So if you're someone that has kind of a desire or discomfort in your legs that's stopping you or making it hard to fall asleep, that's something to let your doctor know about. And there are, are there not medications for that specific issue? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, and, and even before that, uh, we look at some habits that may be making it worse. Alcohol, for instance, makes it worse. Caffeine makes it worse. Um, but another big one that people may not realize is iron deficiency. It, it's, it's a majority of restless legs that are actually linked to not having enough brain iron, which is a little bit different than the amount of blood iron that you need to create an anemia. So you, you may have enough iron to make blood, but you may not have enough iron to make some of the, the neurotransmitters the right way that, that then results in problems with restless legs. Uh, and then once we kind of check those boxes, make sure there is, those are okay, there, there are several families of medicines that we use. Uh, and, and medicines are usually very effective in controlling restless legs. Speaking of medications, and I think it's an important question I wanted to ask you, and I see uh, some of our listeners are doing the same thing. Specifically, this texter says, is taking a different sleeping pill every night harmful in the long run? It would depend a little bit on what the sleeping pill is. Uh, and, and so I'd, I have to know a little bit more to answer that question specifically. But, but most sleep aids are associated with some potential negative effects. It doesn't mean everyone experienced them or everyone will, but the potential is there. Like there's a potential for any medicine to have a negative consequence. Uh, and, and clearly the, the stronger the medicine, but the greater the negative potential there might be associated with that. Um, and so for instance, a commonly used prescription aid out there is a medicine called Zolpidem or its brand name is Ambien. Um, and Ambien can be very effective at helping people fall asleep and stay asleep. Uh, but it is also associated with an increased risk of sleepwalking, sleep talking, uh, morning after motor vehicle accidents. Um, and there's actually some interesting data that suggests long-term users might even see an increased risk of falls uh, uh, and even some cancers maybe of a higher rate in people who are taking a long-term Zolpidem use. So there, there, are some, there are some negative consequences to medications as well. Check with your doctor always. Uh, is uh, REM sleep, a texter says, and you mentioned it earlier, usually the time you dream is one question, and if you dream a lot, is that considered getting a good sleep? <laughs> um, REM sleep is where you probably have the most vivid and vigorous dreaming, although the potential to dream exists in any stage of sleep, but the most and the most intense and the most vigorous is during REM sleep. Um, the the, the vividness of dreaming uh, and your recollection of dreaming is a little bit of a mixed bag uh, because you might think the more I dream, does that mean the more REM sleep I'm having? And, and maybe is the short answer. So that might be a good thing. On the other hand, the more disrupted your sleep is, the more you might recall a dream. So a dream you wake up during or wake up from is a dream you're more likely to remember. So if I had nice deep REM sleep and didn't wake up at all, I may not remember my dream. But someone else who woke up three or four times, say, from apnea during their REM sleep might remember four dreams. And that clearly is not better uh, because it's chopped up. And and so um, the the single 
uh, clinical endpoint of recall or vigorousness of dreaming is hard to say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. We have to kind of put it in context. Sure. If you're just joining us, Dr. Andrew Steam, who's a sleep medicine specialist with Alina here in the Twin Cities, answering those sleep issue, those problems you may be having, one of which we haven't touched yet, uh, 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 leg cramps. I'm looking at a text, doctor, that says, frequently I'm awakened by leg cramps and or feet cramps. Anything I can do about uh, that? Yeah, that that's a common problem. And, and I recall the first time it happened to me how miserable that can be. It's kind of a, you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't, because you're stuck in bed. And if I don't move, it's going to hurt. And if I do move, it's going to hurt. <laughs> you just don't know what to do in a situation like that. Um, so there are things that you can do. Uh, hydration is perhaps the most important one to try to do. So, uh, and it's often linked with things that cause dehydration. So people who exercise right before they go to the bed uh, b- because of sweat and just the effect of exercise are actually more likely to have leg cramps. Or someone who just vigorously exercised that day and didn't hydrate well enough. Uh, people who take water pills. Uh, might be at increased risk of having nighttime light cramps. Uh, so uh, being hydrated, there's a little bit of evidence that the calcium and magnesium supplements might also be helpful in preventing leg cramps. Uh, and so consider a calcium or a magnesium supplement uh, during, as part of your daytime ritual if you're having these cramps regularly. Um, also nighttime stretching can be helpful. And uh, so calf stretching, foot cra- uh, stretching right before you go to bed might be helpful at staving off some of those nighttime leg cramps. Um, There are some medicines that we use, uh, although they tend to have a kind of a bad risk-reward ratio, so there tends to be more negative that could happen with those medicines than positive. So we use them very sparingly and really for kind of the severe cases. Uh, But there are even medicinal things that we can do as well. I've heard both uh, thumbs up, thumbs down on this next question, Doctor, and this particular uh, listener says, does a two-hour nap in the afternoon, make up for a short five-hour night session? Uh, there's yes and no, uh, which is why it's a mixed bag. Um, I don't know that I would call two hours of sleep a nap. That's, that's, that's two hours of sleep. That's a good sleep it at is, that point. Yes. Um, but when I say an adult needs seven to nine hours of sleep, that theoretically is in a 24-hour cycle. So you don't have to get all of your sleep at once. And for some people, if I only have five hours to get sleep at night because of my schedule, um, maybe I need to get two hours elsewhere. In fact, pre, pre-light bulb, uh, kind of pre-industrial area, it was normal for humans to sleep multiple times a day and get their sleep through multiple shifts. That's, that's not a bad way to sleep. Um, napping is mainly a problem when it interferes with your ability to fall asleep at bedtime. So if I'm taking a 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. nap, and now my bedtime at 10 o'clock comes and I can't sleep because I just had this big nap from 5 to 7. Now I'm not getting all the sleep I intend on getting because that nap is interfering. Um, the other thing is, is to discuss kind of if it is a nap, if it's designed to be restorative, kind of the 20 to 40 minute window is probably the best time to have a restorative nap. Um, when it gets longer, there's a bigger risk of entering into deep sleep. And waking up from deep sleep, which you might do after two hours, it can be, um, that's kind of when we have that sleep inertia or sleep drunkenness. I wake up with that headache. I wake up feeling after more tired than when I went to sleep. Um, And so if you're going to commit to that kind of duration, you should commit to uh, waking up spontaneously as, as opposed to an alarm clock. 
Doctor, I know we have to take a quick break here. Maybe when we come back, let's talk about a sleep study. If uh, some folks uh, are, are themselves on the line, maybe they think they need uh, some medical help uh, and they don't know really what to do and, and maybe they're concerned about a sleep study and I urge them to, to check it out because it's it's really a piece of cake and it's amazing what you can learn through that. Let's talk about a sleep study, What what's involved in that. Uh, when we come back, and any more questions, too, this morning. Here on News Talk 830 WCCO. 42 degrees now. The Twin Cities on our way to near 56, and we should see some sunshine later on. Denny Long in for Susie Jones. She'll return next Sunday morning. Here in our health hour this morning, we're uh, having a discussion with Dr. Andrew Steam, who's a pulmonologist, a sleep medicine specialist with Alina Health here in the Twin Cities. We're talking about sleep problems. And uh, I'm looking at a text, Doctor, and I did ask you about uh, sleep evaluation, what goes on there. Let me just uh, read this, and we'll go from there. My husband probably has sleep apnea. He's not overweight. He does not want to mention this to his doctor because he doesn't want that to put uh, put his commercial driver's license in jeopardy. He does not have any driving issues. What do you have for advice for this uh, this person? And what goes on at a sleep evaluation? Yeah, the uh, the sleep evaluation itself is relatively straightforward. Um, in general, for the complaint of sleep apnea, what we really want to do is just watch you breathe while you sleep. And so we often do these tests called home sleep tests, which is just where you wear some equipment one night in your home, in your bed, that watches you breathe. Uh, and then you just bring it back the, the next day and drop it off. And so that's a, a pretty typical home test to watch you uh, breathe and sleep. Uh, then we have the fuller uh, formal sleep study that we call a polysomnogram, uh, which is where you spend the night in one of our facilities. And that one's more elaborate because we're watching more than just your breathing. Uh, we put some scalp electrodes on to monitor your uh, REM sleep and non-REM sleep and wake time. Uh, we put some electrodes by your eyes to see if your eyes are open or closed. Uh, we put oxygen sensors and limb sensors on various parts of your body to watch your, to look for restless legs or limb movements while you're asleep and keep an eye on your oxygen level. So that's more involved. Uh, and we tend to do that test when we're looking for more involved diseases. So that REM behavior disorder I talked about before, you, you, without knowing if you're in REM sleep or not, it's hard to know if you're suffering from REM behavior disorder. And so those are the two main kinds of tests that we do. Um, I, I can understand the apprehension, uh, it, it, for, particularly for people that might have difficulty like falling asleep in a hotel. I can understand how uh, it may be hard to think about falling asleep with all that stuff on. Uh, and, and the general rule of thumb is it takes you about 10 minutes longer to fall asleep in a sleep lab than it does at home. Um, and so it's not as bad for the typical person as you think uh, it, it's going to be. It's only about a 10-minute delay, although those 10 minutes can feel like an eternity. Uh, and for those people that are really concerned, we will regularly offer them a, a sleep aid that they can take with them the night of the sleep test to kind of help nudge them into sleep a little bit faster. Uh, in terms of this particular gentleman, um, I, I can appreciate where he's coming from. Uh, this is a little place where uh, the patient is often misaligned with the profession uh, because the, the individual feels fine, uh, but the, the profession, uh, commercial drivers, uh, are on the lookout for uh, subtle sleep apnea because of the increased risk of motor vehicle accidents. They, they really want to be careful and try to prevent uh, unintended uh, motor vehicle accidents. But 
Um, one out of three people have a hard time tolerating the initial therapy for sleep apnea, which is CPAP. And that's usually the fear that keeps them home, is I'm so afraid I couldn't do a CPAP that I don't even want to know if I have the disease, because it could risk my career. If I can't do a CPAP, maybe I can't drive commercially, you know, and, and that can be a, a catastrophe for people. Um, I would first say two out of three people can succeed with CPAP. And so it's, it's, it's not a great risk uh, for in that, in that kind of category, but one out of three, if you're in that group, that can be a problem. But there are great plan Bs. Uh, so there are good alternative therapies besides CPAP. I'm sure some of your listeners out there have heard of this uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulator, or its brand name is Inspire, which is an oh, implant yes. that sure. opens up the throat while you sleep. That is, is a very effective therapy for the right patient. There are other surgeries that can be done. There are mouth guards that we can use to open up the throat. So there, there is an array of plan B things to do. Um, and so I wouldn't let the fear of a CPAP uh, keep you at home with a disease that we could treat and help you feel better and decrease your risk of death and automobile accident uh, because you're afraid of one therapy. There's more than one therapy. It's like there's more than one pill to treat high blood pressure. There's more than one pill to treat high cholesterol. There's more than one pill uh, to treat depression. And so even if you have a bad effect with that first medicine, there are other choices. And even if you have a bad result with CPAP, there are other choices. So don't be afraid of the disease because you're afraid of just one treatment for it. I know we're almost out of time, doctor. If for those folks that maybe want to get a sleep evaluation, what, what's the first step? Uh, talk to the primary to a doc uh, or person to uh, get a referral or what? Yeah, that, that's a great place to start uh, because they can often tackle some of the original diagnoses that you may have. A, a primary care provider can take care of restless legs. They can take care of insomnia and they can take care of some of the, the simple diseases or they can help identify if you're someone that actually needs a sleep study uh, or more advanced care to take care of it. Um, otherwise, with many insurances, you're also able to reach out directly to a sleep specialist. So you can either go through your primary care or schedule an appointment directly yourself uh, if your insurance permits it. And in maybe 20 seconds, I'm uh, looking at more medical or uh, medicine type of questions uh, quickly. Is it okay to take Tylenol PM every night? Um, the short answer is for a while, uh, and it depends on your age. Uh, the Tylenol part is probably pretty safe, the acetaminophen. The diphenhydramine can start having negative consequences uh, over the long haul, particularly as we age. And so I, I usually say for people that have trouble falling asleep, it's like saying you have back pain. Is we want to get to the bottom of why do I have back pain and why do I have problems falling asleep. Get and so uh, that's where the evaluation comes in. Makes sense. Dr. Steam, always a pleasure. Uh, great to have you back on again. I hope we can do this again. A lot of interest here. I, I enjoy being on the air, Danny. Thank you. Thanks so much. Dr. Andrew Steam, pulmonologist with Alina Health. Stay tuned for Bruce and Peg with more of your money. Should be a sunny day later here in the Twin Cities. Right now here on CCO, few clouds. Temperature reading currently 42 degrees. Stay with us.